Welcome to the podcast, Investorpreneur, where investors meet entrepreneur. Here we talk about everything investing and business. Many people have had the startup dream, build a mega business or to earn a lot of money. And sometimes there's a lot of people out there that want to make a bigger difference to alter the world. Today, I have a guest on the podcast that loves all things Nero. She's done so much in the medical research from Parkinson's and Alzheimer's. Today, my guest here is Casey Grage, and she will share her journey to how she's been able to raise her 600K pre-seed and how she went from research to CEO of Hubley. She's also have investors who believed in her vision right from the very beginning to fund her over a million dollars since her journey began here. Casey, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. We are honored to have you. As a matter of fact, you inspire me. There's so much about your business that will alter the world, and you've been able to share that with me offline here. And I really think that the world needs to hear more about your journey. So without further ado, Casey, can you share with us how you got started on this? You've got a list of credentials in the research field. So how did you get started on this journey, and how has that background helped you along this venture? Sure. I started off in neuroscience research because I have a long family history with neurodegenerative disease, Parkinson's and Alzheimer's both run in my family. And so I decided to pursue neuroscience research and I was planning to uh, really go the professor route and get a PhD in neuroscience and then do postdoc and try to get tenure. And what ended up happening was that I was working in neuroscience research for a few years and I was doing very fundamental Parkinson's and Alzheimer's disease research. It was awesome. I love doing this fundamental research. I was basically, I was using a two photon laser to shoot lasers right next to uh, dendrites, which are protrusions at their part of a neuron in mice. So I was shooting lasers at basically mice brains and trying to grow new dendritic spines off their neurons so that we could learn how we can promote dendritic spine formation in brains. And so I was doing that for a few years. It was awesome. I loved it. But I think I became a little bit jaded with the whole process of it takes decades of publishing scientific papers, which eventually get picked up by a pharmaceutical company and then becomes a therapeutic target, which is obviously incredibly important work and really exciting science. But as I was working with patients of Parkinson's and Alzheimer's just in my through my family or through volunteer work, I decided that I wanted to not just be a part of creating the technology, but also aiding in the adoption of that technology into improving patient outcomes. And so where that led me is wanting to switch over to bioengineering and start building stuff. And so I worked in a lab briefly building neuroimplantable wireless device, but that was for use in neuroscience research. So it was really fun, but it was one step further removed from these patient outcomes. And so then I decided I could take those skills in engineering and neuroscience and I could apply them to medical devices. And so I enrolled in this MBA class at Northwestern where I had been studying and it was an MBA class in medical device entrepreneurship. And so I already knew from my personal life and from my work that a lot of surgical tools are incredibly outdated, but what really ended up kind of sealing the deal for starting this company was that in that class, I met a neurosurgeon. His name is Dr. Amit Ayer, and he was a full-time neurosurgeon at Northwestern. He was getting his MBA at night. And so he was the one who 
really came up with the whole idea for this company. And he said, I use this hand cranked drill to bore holes into people's skulls every single day. Not only is it incredibly antiquated, but it can also be really dangerous. And so he and I came together over that shared interest in neurology. We had the complementary skills of him being on the clinical side, me being more on the engineering side. And we decided to do something about this hand crank drill that has a really high failure rate. So Casey, I know when, when I first heard about this, I, I was thinking, okay, hand crank drill, neuroscience, neurology. And, and so why did you think this was such a big deal? At the beginning, I, I was like, okay, drill, how big can this be? Can you share with us a little bit about how big this industry is, what really is the problem you are solving with your business? Sure. The most common neurosurgical procedure is a burr hole being placed in the skull. That literally just means drilling a hole through the skull. And you need to do that anytime you need to access the brain in some way. And so often that inserting a catheter to relieve pressure, cerebrospinal fluid, but it can also mean trying to insert different therapies into the brain. So maybe chemotherapy or deep brain electrode placement for epilepsy. But there's a whole host of reasons why you'd want to drill a hole in the skull. And when this is an emergency procedure, so that could be a stroke, aneurysm, traumatic brain injury, or again, excess pressure fluid in the brain, then there's no time to book and prep an operating room. And this happens actually quite often. There's about 20,000 of these procedures in the US annually. And the only option from Hong Kong to the US to Europe to anywhere is the same hand crank drill. Uh, and that's, it's the only option all over the world. And it leads to really high failure rates. It's a brutal procedure. It's drilling a hole into someone's skull not in an operating room, but there's there's certain ways in which we can mitigate complications from this procedure. And that's through improving the ease of use for the neurosurgeon. Because right now this hand crank drill, it's a two-handed procedure, obviously, because it's hand cranked, but there's all these kind of elements that the surgeon has to control for. And oftentimes because they're doing this not in an OR, they don't have a team behind them. And so the patient is oftentimes awake. And as the surgeon is drilling, the patient could be moving down the, the chair. There are all sorts of different problems that are arising. And we believe we can improve patient outcomes here and mitigate complications through really making this an easier procedure for the neurosurgeon. Taking out the element of the hand crank drill. And also we have auto stop, we have catheter guidance, we have all these different features so that the surgeon can focus on 30 of the other, you know, 50 things that they need to be worried about in this procedure. So obviously your co-founder has found a, a very unique need for a device, right? So like you say, there's like 20,000 of these events that happen just as an emergency, not an operating room in the US. Mm -hmm. So all around the world, why do you think that there has not been a better solution? That's a really good question. And it's one that I continually <laughs> am trying to find the answer to. I think one answer is that surprisingly, a lot of bedside tools are antiquated. It's just a field that's been neglected. Mm -hmm. And I think it's because there's these huge medical device companies that kind of run the medical device world and they are awesome and they're doing awesome technology and they're really focused on this cutting edge robotics and things like that are really exciting, innovative technology. And so things that are smaller scale, like replacing a 
handheld drill that's hand cranked with a handheld drill that has these automatic safety features falls under the radar. And then the other answer is that people have tried to modernize this procedure before. There's a couple different startups and surgeons who have come up with different devices to make this procedure better. There's one company that has a battery powered drill, but it doesn't have auto stop. And so that leads to new problems. And then there's another company that is a catheter guide, but it's an add-on to the procedure rather than being integrated with the drill solution. And again, it's not accounting for that ease of use problem in an emergency situation. So is there anything, Casey, along your journey, and you started this company for now over a year, has there been any critical feedback that you've received on this journey that was really difficult for you to hear? Like it was just, it really hit a nerve. And oh. why was it so difficult? <laughs> Absolutely. We've gotten a lot of tough feedback and since we've been working on this, but the, I guess the most salient example in my mind is Back in fall of 2020, we decided we were going to raise this pre-seed round. And we had, we meaning my other co-founder, Tyler and I, had developed the Hubley drill so that it worked. It was done. We were like, great, we're ready to uh, start working on our FDA clearance application. We had this battery-powered drill with auto stop. And so I went out there and I started to fundraise for investors. And in this, in this experience, I talked to 50 investors in about a month and I got small check sizes from meeting number three and meeting number six, about 25K each. And then I got 44 no's in a row. And that's when I decided I really needed to reassess what was happening there. I went back and I talked to all these different investors who had said no. And I, I asked them, what's the big problem? What's your biggest concern? And Pretty consistently, the biggest concern was that our COGS, our cost of goods and services for our drill was too high and our margin was too low because we were pricing our drill, single-use disposable, at $2,000 per unit. And the current hand crank drill is priced at $1,200 per unit. And we had a margin of 75%. And so I think this was, I don't know how much I can blame COVID on this, but it definitely was a factor in that hospitals care a lot more about their bottom line. And they especially did back in 2020. And so even though it was only an 800 price difference, which seems so negligible for, for neurosurgery, that really made a big difference. And so that's what these investors very adeptly had figured out was that you really need to get your price closer to the current standard and 75% isn't a good enough margin for us. And then I then spent a month interviewing hospital administrators about the price. And they said, not only do you need to get your price point down, but you really need to price match because right now we are just trying to save money. We're not trying to spend any additional at all. And so what this meant is that Tyler and I said, we cannot get our COGS down from the 75% margin and lower the price point. We need to start over in some ways. And so he and I went back to the drawing board and we came up with a whole new way of making the Hubley drill. And I really, I have to give all the credit to Tyler because between about November, 2020 to February, 2021, he completely reinvented the Hubley drill and got a fully working, ready to go version that had lowered the COGS from $500 to $100. And so now we're able to price match the hand crank drill and reap an 85% margin. 
and we were really successful. We got our first VC. Samarth, who's been on your podcast from First Fund, he came in and right at the, at the beginning of March, right after we finished that new drill. So it, it worked out. That's awesome. That's a great story. Casey, what did you take from it? Obviously resetting and considering redoing the whole dynamic of what you've already come up with. Did you ever thought about giving up? Did Tyler ever think about giving up? It was like throwing the towel. What went through your head at that point? How did you overcome that? Or was there somebody that helped you or insights that you seeked at that point? I never thought about throwing in the towel per se, but I did genuinely worry that we were just going to run out of money and that we'd be forced to throw in the towel because we had been planning to do this raise in September, October with a few months of buffer. And then we were now having to start over, do all this R&D without any additional funds. And I didn't know how long it was going to take because it took us maybe nine months the first time. So part of it was definitely, to some extent, it was just Tyler's skill <laughs> that really led us through this, that he could reinvent this thing in about three months. But how we ended up surviving was really through non-dilutive funding. And so I, and usually non-dilutive funding sources take a really long time to get through. The big government grants, they take years mm -hmm. to solicit. And so I'm not talking about those. I'm talking about small scale. I put my head down. I said, I'm not going to get investors right now. So I need to put all of my effort into these pitch competitions and finding really small scale grants. And so that's how we survived the last few months was getting these $10,000 grants kind of here and there from all these pitch competitions and associations that I was applying to. So you, you that's how you got through all this, right? That's the bridge <laughs> is by competing to, for these check sizes, $5,000, $10,000 at a time. Yeah, pretty much. We did, we got a couple big ones, big in quotes. It seems small now, but we got $30,000 from the National Science Foundation i program. We got $40,000 from the Chilean government through a grant that they had kind of got creative, but um, it, it ended up in those two programs that I just mentioned, the NSF and the Chile one they ended up having a lot of non-monetary value add as well. So absolutely no regrets here. We learned a lot and we powered through. Fantastic. That's awesome. So if we were to say that your device is now going to make a difference for so many people around the world. So we know the power behind that. How did you get investors to see the same thing you did? Because I'm, I'm guessing a lot of your investors are not necessarily in the medical field, may or may not be, I don't know. But if you can About share 50, that with 50. us, 50-50. So from the people who did and the people who weren't in this field, did you have to give them a very different message for their consideration of their capital? Can you talk us through tips or elements that you had to maneuver in both of these pitches? Sure. You know, I, I use the same for everyone, the same basic PowerPoint, and that's in part easier for me, but mostly it's just, I, I believe that everyone should be getting the same material. It should be standard. However, I do change the level of detail that I go into and the things that I focus on depending on the investment. So for example, the people who are not in the field of the medical aspect. Mm -hmm. What do you share with them that specifically captures more of their attention about Hubley? <laughs> I show them the hand crank drill. Oh, yes, I, would, I know that, this is oh, a, that would be awesome. Your audience can't see me, but yeah, this is the the standard that they use today all over the world. Yeah, to to audiences, this is just a kind of a black 
piece of plastic. It has an egg beater style crank. It wobbles a little bit and it's only right-handed. So, and it's um, $1,200. And it's $1,200. It's really, it's, it's terrifying to look at. It really is reminiscent of the middle ages. And we're really lucky in that it's a pretty easy story to get across. It's a simple look, they're hand cranking to people's heads. It's, it, it, they've been doing this since the 1400s. It's absolutely ridiculous. And I just ask them, I say, imagine someone in your family getting into a car accident. Can you imagine this thing going into their heads? And that happens every single day to people across, across the world. And it's a very obvious problem that I think is an easy story to tell. Wow. Actually, that's very powerful. A lot of the investors are here. A lot of entrepreneurs are listening to this podcast. Are there any tips that come up to mind, maybe a couple that you can share with us about raising capital? Simple, a couple of tips of raising capital. One of the coolest things that happened was that out of those 44 no's that we got back in at the end of 2020, which I mentioned, a couple of them ended up being our biggest check sizes in this current round, six to nine months later. And so I guess kind of the takeaway there is to really listen to investors. They know what they're doing. They, they've seen a lot of companies pitch. A lot of them have built companies themselves. And so take their advice and use that to better your company. Even if they say no, take it as a learning experience. And then they'll recognize that. And one of my investors who he put in over $200,000 in this round, it was as a result of him, him giving me advice back in September, 2020. And then when I came back to him in March, 2021, he said, you would not believe how few entrepreneurs that I talk to actually take the advice that I give them and run with it. And I can see that you've done that and I'm write you a check. And it was probably the, the easiest check that I've gotten to date. We had like a half an hour meeting and he was like, you've done great in the last six months. You did everything I recommended. Let's do this. I want to work with you. But it was only easy because I had listened to the advice he gave me and applied that to the company over the course of six months. Wow. That is very insightful. You mentioned about the VC, right? In this particular case, how was it different working with a VC versus individual investors, which most precede or Farhan's family probably would be? How was it different in your case? Sure. I think that the, the goals for everyone that we have involved in our company, we make sure that everyone is on the same page with the mission, which is saving lives, saving hospitals money, improving patient outcomes. And so that's the one thing that's consistent across all of our investors is that at the end of the day, obviously we want to make money and we're gonna, but we're going to do that through goal number one, which is making the world better. So that's the thing that's the, the same across everyone. The thing that's different is I guess it depends. I, Samarth is, I, I don't know if he's your average VC. I would say a lot of VCs that I talk to, a lot of times they'll care more about the long-term plan. Like what's your product two, what's your product three, how are you turning this into a billion dollar company? With the VCs that we have today, I would say that they do have that personal aspect that angels have, which is this is a very personal problem to them, even either because they have someone in their family who has suffered from this, or they just, as I said, they don't want a hand crank drill going into their head or their loved one's head. So yeah, that's the spectrum of what we get. That's a great story. So Casey, as you now have ventured a year now past, you've raised essentially a million dollars. That's a big threshold and a big milestone. So first and foremost, congratulations. What is the road here? You being the founder, one of the co-founders, 
and now operating the business. What's in your front mirror here? Like, you know, your windshield there, what are you seeing? What are you seeing one or perhaps even three years out? Oh, absolutely. So we're starting off with this very niche procedure, bedside burr hole placement. But the basic idea of the company is that we're modernizing tools that have been neglected for decades. And our kind of underlying deep tech of the Hubley drill, I haven't talked about it much yet, but it's this current monitoring electric auto stop that such that the, the power shuts off immediately upon breaking through the skull. And so that kind of underlying tech can be applied to really any most procedures for which over drilling into nerves is a risk. And so the plan is absolutely more products. The first step is kind of our phase two is just very simple, creating the reusable version of the Hubley drill for use in the OR for um, both neurosurgical procedures and orthopedic procedures. And that's obviously not modernizing bedside tools, but it's a different and an avenue we can take in parallel. And there's also a lot of money there, but the kind of impact statement there is that the tools in the R very highly advanced. There's a lot of control. They work well, except, except for when they don't, there's still safety features that seem really apparent to me that are not there. So for example, this auto stop that I just mentioned for neurosurgeries in the OR, they have this, they, they don't have. And so that's a simple solution that it seems that should be used in conjunction with robotics, with neuro navigation. And so the path for our company to becoming that billion dollar company is making these safety features in conjunction with making them so that they can be used with the advanced robotics of today and just saying, you sh why don't you have this? We might as well, and more than might as well. It's for the good of the patient, for the good of medicine, this, there is an ethical responsibility for there to be as many safety features here as there can be. And then in addition to that whole avenue of making kind of these tools that are used with robotics, there's again, the bedside market, which as I said, it, it's just an antiquated space. And so there's just a lot of room to be done there as well. So I'm thinking this whole product portfolio. Okay. So you've got your sights on a few things that you really want to, <laughs> you want to improve on. And I was sharing before this podcast with you that as I'm having conversations with various people, they go, there's so much that can be enhanced. And because mm -hmm. they're in the field, they understand that there's so much that can be improved. And as a matter of fact, I think what's really interesting is uh, I think Casey, you can attest to it is a lot of people, especially in the field, they want to do better. They, they want to be as precise. They want to be as perfect. They have, as much as their scrutiny from everybody else, they're the biggest judge of their skill set and how well they do. And it's because and these of highly skilled people, they are, I could not be a neurosurgeon. Like these are incredibly skilled people. There's so many, when they're doing this procedure, they have to be paying attention to 10 different things at once. We have the technology to make it so that they only need to pay attention to five things at once. Mm -hmm. Why would we not? So that's exactly the problem you are solving here. So in, 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 you know, in closing, let me ask you this, Casey, and I think this is really important for everybody else listening out there. Tell me about what you would, hypothetically, if you were to meet yourself a year ago, right? Yourself a year ago, as you're starting up Hubley, what advice would you give yourself? Oh God, that's a great question. I would give myself a lot of advice. Am I supposed to just pick one? Go for it. I, I would, we would love to hear 
what insight you have. All right. Number one is I ended up hiring fantastic people. And that's a testament to all of my amazing advisors and mentors who helped me along the way. But I could have saved a lot of time in the hiring process if I had known from the very beginning not to settle on any factor. Hire the perfect people because once you hire them in an early stage startup, it, it, it would it's hard to switch. It's hard to undo that and mm. uh, get someone new. Thankfully, I haven't had to do that. I, I would tell myself, don't settle. You can't be too picky. And that would have saved me a lot of time going through resumes and interviewing potential candidates that eventually my mentors were like, no, this person's 90% there, but you need a hundred. <laughs> um, so that's number one. Is, yeah. And then number two, which is a very relevant to what I just said is I think the most important thing about running a company is you don't necessarily need need to be smart or know everything and you're not going to know everything. I certainly can't do, I can't do a lot of the things that our company needs, patent law, corporate law, but it's about knowing, trusting who to listen to and deciding what advice you're going to take at face value. And I think that's just something that you obviously learn throughout your life is who to trust as people, who's on your side. And I think that really comes down to at the end of the day, getting advisors, mentors, friends who fundamentally believe in your mission, whether that's in making as much money as possible or trying to improve patient outcomes or whatever your mission is, it's making sure that you're on the same page with everyone. And in my case, that's number one, making the world a better place. And from that, it's a, it's a direct line to making a lot of money while we're at it. Wow, okay. So those are two great advices for everybody who's <laughs> listening all around the world whether from investors, entrepreneurs, those are great advice that you've been able to provide us today with Casey. So as we wrap up, is there any final thoughts? A lot of people are going to hear about your company for the years to come because of what you're doing to this space. So mark my words on that. Casey, do you have any final thoughts that you would like to share with us today? I got great advice again from another a professor of MBA professor of mine and he said you can't plan an acquisition you can't say you can't say oh we're gonna we're gonna build up to this point and then we're gonna get acquired and it's gonna be an awesome deal and everyone's gonna be happy in the end and what you have to do is maybe you'd be open to an acquisition if there's a big check on the table with great terms then of course you'd be open to it but you have to really keep the end goal in sight which is replacing the hand crank drill all over the world and improving. And then the next steps, which is this additional technology we have coming out for the OR and for other bedside procedures. And so in my head, I have all of our projections and all of our plans laid out such that we're doing this on our own. And if there's another strategic partner that wants to come in there with and acquire us, and then I do that through that acquirer, and that makes sense, then sure. Of course, we'd be open to that along the way, but my biggest mission and everyone, my biggest objective and everyone on my team would agree with this is that we don't want this company to be acquired and then put on a shelf. We, mm. we want this technology in the hands of surgeons and we want advanced tools going into patients' heads. And so I have planned out how we're going to build this product and this product line and this technology and how we're going to get into hospital systems. And if that's through a strategic partner, like I mentioned, then that's great. There's a lot of arguments for why having that kind of level of distribution and channel partners 
makes a lot of sense for commercializing this. But if we do it on our own, that's great too. And I fully believe that we'll be successful. There you have it, Casey. That's amazing. The story that you shared with us today, how you've been able to overcome challenge, right? 44 no's and actually getting <laughs> ahead and now raising over a million dollars and then now taking this by storm and, and in an industry that is really hard to crack into. So mark my words for those who are listening here all around the world, strategic partnership is always a possibility, but more importantly, I think that you're absolutely right, Casey. You have that skill set. You have that team that can revolutionize and change this field. And uh, when you showed me, and for those who weren't able to get that visual, that hand crank drill, I'd say it's crazy how we still have this old technology solving some really big problems. Absolutely. Thank you, Casey. For if they want to see the hand crank drill, oh, thank you for having me. If they want to see it, a quick plug, you can go to our web at hubleysurgical.com and we we have it there. <laughs> you can check it out. With that being said, hey guys, everybody has that opportunity, whether to be an entrepreneur or whether to be an investor, but both of these people can make huge, huge differences to the world for that. We see, we want to come true. Casey, once again, thank you for being on here. Thank you for sharing your vision, your insight as to how you are building your business. And we look forward to more greater things as you progress through this journey. Thank you. It's been a lot of fun.